Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome to the show, Francistans. Last week, I asked you to vote for which episode I should release today. I didn't end up running the poll or hearing from you on this, but Hashem did send me a sign. And unfortunately, I learned of a recent pregnancy loss from a friend of mine over the weekend, and I felt this was the right episode to release today. The pain is so real for those who go through it. The lucky ones who don't can't really understand it. But hearing other people's stories, experiences can really change how we act around the people who are in the pain. As outsiders, it's not necessarily something that you need to do for them. Many times it's the things or words not to say or do. So here's an episode for you. And as much healing and validation I hope it brings to couples or individuals who suffer a lonely infertility experience, I also hope it will help others gain the understanding and sensitivity to help feel something real without having to experience it firsthand. Before we begin, I'd like to share that thanks to you, we have scheduled a few excellent interviews based on some of the topics that I mentioned in the last few episodes. And if you stick around until the end, I'll share with you what I'm working on next and how you can participate in some of those episodes. And again, if you enjoy this podcast, you probably will enjoy other JewishCoffeeHouse.com podcasts. So go and check them out. Now you might be wondering, what are some of the ways you can support the show? Well, let me tell you how, and it's super easy and it's completely free. You can actually earn money by sending clients to my podcast launch business. I help people, companies, nonprofits launch their podcasts in a way where they can set it up and do it on their own or with their own teams. As always, I appreciate your business. Thank you for thinking of me. This is how you support the show. And without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show. Today we have a special episode, really true to my heart. And we have a repeat guest here. So that's exciting as well. The topic is primary and secondary infertility. And being from living in a community where everyone's expected to have babies right away and second babies and grow your families. So I think it's really important to spend some time here, personal stories of women who are not ashamed, who aren't so brave to come out and talk about their personal experience, because there's so many women out there and families out there that are dealing with this pain. And it is a very lonely experience. So the purpose of this episode is to make this experience less lonely, to feel more understood, and to hopefully give some more understanding to families who are able to have children right away and to give them a little bit more perspective and the ability to be more sensitive toward other people. So welcome to the show, Kesha Star. It's so nice to have you back. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here and get to be here for a second time. Yes. If you haven't listened to our first episode together, Keshet is the CEO of ORA, the Organization for Resolution of Agunot. And I highly recommend listening back to that episode. 
But today we're here to talk to you as a mother. Tell us how your story began and what you would like to share with us today. Sure. So when I was in college, actually, I was diagnosed with a medical condition that can sometimes cause infertility. So I knew really early on in life that this was a possibility and I can't even describe it, but I almost felt like I knew it already. When I found out there was something in it, something felt familiar to me, or it felt like something that I had sort of always known on a certain level. And then in the effort to have my first baby that took about two and a half years, it involved a, a number of different efforts at different kinds of treatment. Finally, after two and a half years, we found sort of a protocol that worked. I had my first baby, a beautiful little girl. I was really fortunate that I was able to replicate that same protocol in order to have my second and third kids. So it was still a lot of work and running around and medications and procedures, but it was fast overall. And then when I was ready to have my fourth, I again experienced challenges. The protocol that had worked in the past all of a sudden wasn't working. And so that was a year and a half long process of trying different things, experiencing losses, and eventually becoming pregnant and staying pregnant with my newest little girl. And so that's kind of my story in a nutshell. And I've uh, really dealt with infertility, both as a young wife who was trying to have a baby for the first time. And I've also experienced what it feels like to have a family and really want to grow your family and not be able to. Wow. So you summarized this so quickly. So let's break this down a little bit. Can you talk to us about, I don't know if you're comfortable sharing what the condition is, but what were the first protocols that you have learned and how long did it take you to discover them? How costly was it also? Very good question. So what I have is called PCOS and it's polycystic ovarian syndrome. If you want to Google it, and it's actually really common. A lot of women have it, but don't necessarily know that they have it. And what basically happens is that it means that your body doesn't ovulate regularly. And so typically, again, you have to ovulate in order to get pregnant. So if you're not ovulating in the first place, there is no possibility of then getting pregnant. So a lot of the medication is designed to get your body to ovulate. And it's always kind of incredible how much time and money and work goes into replicating a process that would otherwise happen naturally in your body. But essentially there's a lot of medications that you can take to address PCOS, to inspire ovulation. The challenge is that if you do them too enthusiastically, you can end up with quintuplets or you can end up overstimulating, which is a pretty dangerous situation where your body kind of goes into hyperdrive and it's actually really not safe. And so, especially when you're doing this and you're younger, it's a real balancing act for the doctor to really give you enough medication that your body's reacting, but not to provide so much medication that you run the risk of overstimulating or having like a million kids. And so you're trying to find that balance. And as a patient, you're like, I'll just take all the drugs right now because I want the results. And so my doctor really slowed me down a lot. And for me, it was really a very long process in the beginning of just figuring out which drugs worked and one issue kind of led to another. So we realized at some point that I had a thyroid issue as well. Thyroid medication takes six weeks to see if your body has responded to it or not. So just switching the dose of the thyroid medication involves multiple six-week waits to then see what happened. 
I also took a drug called Clomid, which many people take. It's uh, known as a very non-invasive medication because it's only a pill, which uh, as you'll see is uh, on the easier side, but it had an imp for me where it made me really depressed, really stressed out. And I could almost, I could really chart on a calendar that, you know, I'm going to be a disaster from, you know, Tuesday to Friday. So I won't, you know, invite guests for Shabbos this week or whatever it is. So you could really tell in advance what that impact was going to be. I took a medication that basically impacts insulin. PCOS can be tied to how your body processes blood sugar and insulin. So I actually took a medication where if you ate white carbs, it made your body want to kill you. So you really had to eat a healthy diet. Otherwise you would suffer greatly. And so all the medications had side effects. Some were physical, some were emotional, and we paid for everything out of pocket. So if you go to your doctor and you get an ultrasound that's six, $700, and you're paying that out of pocket, you are spending hundreds of dollars in the pharmacy every month. And yes, it's a very expensive and long process. Did you have to deal with disclosing or sharing about your condition with your husband when you were dating or engaged? How did you navigate that? I did share it. I waited till we were more seriously dating. That's a really hard and sensitive issue. And I think in some ways, gauging how comfortable you feel having that conversation can help give you a sense of where you're at in the relationship and if this is the right person for you and someone that you're comfortable with. But we both knew and we went in knowing that it was going to be a challenge. I will say I didn't realize how challenging it would be. My sense was that, okay, so you take like a pill or two and then you know, it makes your body like everyone else's body. And then you just get pregnant and that's it. And my doctor was surprised by how long it took my body to respond and how much just time and challenge ended up going into it. So you can only anticipate so much. It's hard to know everything that something's going to bring, but I definitely think if you know, you want to share it, it's just not a great way to start a relationship, not sharing it. And for people maybe on the other end hearing information like this to also keep in mind that we never know what's coming and that while we should go into these things with our eyes open, every marriage is going to struggle with different things. Every relationship, you're always going to face things. And this way you have a heads up, which to me was so valuable. I started trying earlier than I would have otherwise. And I sought help very early, I think within a month or two, because I knew already that there was this barrier. So I didn't have to spend a year, two years, three years trying on my own only to then begin the process of getting medical help. Can you talk to the financial aspect of it? Did you ever reach out to Bone Olam or I don't know if there are other organizations that can help out financially? Yes. So there is Bone Olam, Jewish Fertility Foundation as well helps financially. We were fortunate to give a sense if, for those of you unfamiliar with infertility treatments, there's kind of a range between the really low invasive ones, so pills, then you start adding in injections to the pills that gets a little more expensive. There's a procedure called an IUI, which is not super expensive, honestly, but it just really raises the likelihood of a pregnancy. And then there's IVF. And as uh, an infertility friend once told me, IVF to an IUI is like college to kindergarten. It is a really different undertaking. 
IVF is very expensive. It typically starts at 10 to 15,000 a cycle and has about a 10% success rate per cycle from what I know. And I'll also add as a caveat, I am not a medical expert on infertility, just a uh, former patient. So, you know, Apologies if I'm saying anything that is not sort of the very latest information. And so when it comes to IVF, that's where you really feel the financial cost. We were very fortunate that we only had to do IVF in order to have our fourth. And by that point, it was actually covered by our insurance. And so we did not have to pay for it at all, which was incredible. Before that, we paid for everything ourselves. This is talking not with IVF. It was several thousand a cycle. You add in appointments and medications, you're looking at at least five, 6,000 a cycle. And we paid for it out of pocket. And we did make financial decisions to some extent based on that. So we were looking at houses while we were trying to have our first baby, but I felt like I couldn't commit to a house until I knew how much I would have to spend on having a baby. And I wanted to, you know, free up the money for that. So we held off on making kind of larger financial decisions, knowing that there was this big question mark. Were you open about your struggles with your family and community or was this private and an alone experience? Initially, I was much more private. Over time, I became more open about it. I found that especially when I was trying to have my first, I really shifted in terms of how much I wanted to talk about it. That sometimes in the beginning, I think I was a little more hopeful that, okay, I'm going through this thing and I'm going to take these medications. I'm going to get pregnant. It'll be great. And as more and more time passed and more and more treatments failed, I just became less optimistic and I wanted to talk about it less. So it really shifted. I've overall chosen to be pretty open and over time have gotten more open. I think that the secrecy can in some ways make the experience even harder, although it's a super vulnerable experience and no one should have to share more than they feel comfortable sharing. But I do think that for me, sharing at least with close family members and friends really helped me get support when I needed it. And I remember one of my friends saying, I'm not sure what to do sometimes. I'm not sure if I should bring it up because I don't want to bring it up and make you sad. But I also don't want you to think that I'm not thinking about you and that we're just talking about other things and I've totally forgotten. And so I really appreciated when my friends really asked me, how can I help support you through this? And is it helpful if I mention it? Is it not? That made a big difference to me. So putting the ball in your court and sort of saying whatever you're comfortable with, we're here for you. We love you. Definitely. And that we're thinking about you, even if we're not saying it. Let's move on to the experiences of losses. You said losses in plural. Mm -hmm. And then later on to the IVF experience. Yes. When I started the process of having my fourth, I figured this is going to be a couple of weeks. I know exactly what to do. I have a system that's worked three times now. It shouldn't be a problem. And I went in really, again, just, okay, it'll be a busy couple of weeks and I'll move on. And it just didn't work. And what are the busy? It's taking the pills, injections, and IUIs? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I think a lot of people don't realize this about infertility. It's extremely busy. You are at the doctor's office multiple times a week, and there is no flexibility as to when you go. So 
with infertility, the calendar starts with the day you get your period, which is day one. And everything is, you must do this on day four. You must take this injection on day six. You must come into the office on day 12. You can't just come in on day 15 because you have a busy day on day 12. What about Chavez? Yes. Shabbos can sometimes be a challenge. Sometimes you do have to go in for monitoring or a procedure on Shabbos. And that lack of flexibility adds to a lot of chaos. I've gone straight from presenting at conferences, like jumped into an Uber to get to my clinic before they close down and get monitoring done. I've come straight from the airport with, you know, suitcases. (laughs) I've done kind of crazy things in order to get there on exactly that specific day. And so while you're in active treatment, you are constantly remembering things. You're constantly working. I have a separate Google calendar for it and everything is extremely specific. And then with IVF, that goes up 10 notches. During IVF, during the busy period, you go to the office every single day. So every morning you go to the clinic, you get blood work done, you get an internal ultrasound, and then the nurse calls you that afternoon to tell you what injections you're taking that night and what dosage of each medicine, and you must take it at precise times. So the trigger shot that gets you to ovulate before the first part of IVF, I had to take it at 12.45 p.m., and it wasn't flexible, or 12. 45 a.m. So I stayed up late because I was afraid that if I went to sleep, I would miss it. So your life really kind of has to revolve around it. And when you have other things going on in your life, you're either missing appointments that you really shouldn't be missing on the fertility front, or you're missing work things, or you're doing sort of crazy shenanigans trying to make it all happen in the time frame. Back to the pregnancy losses? Yes. So when I started trying again, I tried again the protocol that had worked before, which was not IVF, but kind of everything but. And it didn't work once. It didn't work a second time. The third or fourth time it did work. And then I almost immediately lost the pregnancy. And that happened. I would say overall, it blurs a little together in my mind in terms of which round was which. But overall, I tried probably nine or 10 times that same protocol that had worked before. Part of why I tried so many times is that I was very afraid of IVF. And I knew that I would have to switch doctors for IVF. And I really loved my doctor. So that was a big thing for me as well. I kept trying and I ultimately had three losses. Two were so early that if I hadn't been trying, I don't think I would have known. One of them, everything seemed to work. I got the, you know, you check that you're pregnant through blood work typically with infertility because pregnancy tests test for HCG. And I actually took HCG injections. So you couldn't tell where the HCG was coming from. So I would get a blood test. I got the phone call, you're pregnant. And within a couple of weeks started bleeding for a few days, everything was back and forth. One day, the numbers would be up. The next day, the numbers would be down. I'd be spotting, it would stop. And then at a certain point, there was so much bleeding that I knew you know, it was not, I was not pregnant anymore and the numbers confirmed it. So there was limbo and then finally having closure. And after that, I did a DNC, which is a procedure that you have sometimes after a miscarriage that can help just make sure that everything's sort of in good working order to try again. I said I was going to try one more time. And if that didn't work, I would do IVF. And I was sure that it would work. And I just had a really good feeling about it. And that's 
one of the hard things about infertility as well. Sometimes you just really have a feeling in your bones that the cycle's going well, that things are lining up, that I don't know, you just kind of feel pregnant afterwards. You just have a really positive sense about the cycle. And that ended up not working. I didn't get pregnant. And so I went ahead and started the IVF process. And that for me, and you know, depending on who you're seeing for other people as well, can involve finding a new clinic, working it out with the insurance. If you're fortunate enough to have insurance coverage, getting insurance to actually cover things can still be very challenging. And with IVF in particular, you're taking pretty specialized fertility treatments. So you're working with special pharmacies that are just for fertility purposes. So there is complicated insurance elements to getting approval for those pharmacies. There was a point I normally ignore any phone calls from numbers I don't recognize because they're usually a people talking to me about car rebates. But there was a period where I had to pick up every one of those calls because it was always a medical pharmacy or an insurance provider. And so I just had to train myself to picking up every potential spam call because it was relevant. And so that's really when I shifted and began the IVF process. And I was really, really fortunate that that process worked which again was amazing. And there are different types of IVF. I did a type of IVF that includes something called PGD. And it's basically where they create these embryos sort of outside of the womb, which is a crazy thing. And then they actually test the embryos to see how healthy they are. And that way, you know that the embryo that's being transferred back into you is a healthy embryo. So sometimes when people like me have had losses in the past, you like to do that step because that way you can get information as my body rejecting healthy babies? Or am I getting pregnant with embryos that are not healthy? And that's why my body is ending the pregnancy. So that can be a helpful way to get information. It does cost more and take longer. And so that adds a little more to the process. And it ended up, I want to say being about a three month process to do one cycle of IVF because of the PGD piece and because of another delay that came up. A few questions. Number one, did you have to do any halachic or rabbi checking when doing this IVF procedure? I spoke with my rabbi in general, and I had been in touch with my rabbi probably throughout the um, the process, so had a good sense of what it entailed. And generally, I was very worried about that, but it turned out to not be such a problem. I had in a, a twist of events. Basically, IVF involves two parts. There's a retrieval where they basically really get your body to produce tons and tons of eggs. They then take the eggs out in order to create embryos, and then they put an embryo back in. And so the day I was supposed to have my retrieval, there was a storm here in New Jersey, and my clinic lost power, and I ended up having to go to a different clinic for the retrieval, which I was worried would create a whole issue with the halakhic process, but it ended up being totally fine. And I think the key as well is just finding halachic guidance that is familiar with the infertility process and how it works. There are many rabbis who, again, they they know what IVF is, they know what an IUI is, they know how it works. And usually the main concern is just making sure that they're monitoring 
whose genetic material belongs to who so that you don't have sort of tubes getting mixed up and sort of identity issues, which the um, clinics don't want to have either. And so it's usually an element of tracking that this is your genetic material and making sure that there's a system that monitors that closely. But is there a halachic issue with choosing one embryo over another? It's a very good question. I will share... I was asked if I wanted to choose the gender, which was kind of a a crazy, I mean, an unexpected question for me since there were a bunch of embryos. For me personally, I felt that I, I wasn't comfortable doing that. A, it felt a little too playing God to me. And I felt that I would attach too much to the embryo. And again, you can do all of this and you have a 10% chance of it working. So there's no guarantee that you're going to get pregnant and there's no guarantee that you're going to stay pregnant. So I didn't want to know a gender and feel such a sense of connection right away. It's a really interesting question, though, if I ask the Shyla, are you able to do that? And I, I wonder. The next thing I would want to know is after an IVF cycle that fails, how long do you have to wait to start again? It's a good question. And I will say I was fortunate to have my first IVF cycle work. So I'm not hundred percent sure. Typically after a miscarriage, they want you to wait about three months. So if it's a loss, then that would be a longer wait. If it's not a loss, my understanding is that you'd be able to try the next month. That's what I thought. And one thing I'll add to that as well is that with IVF, they're producing a whole bunch of embryos typically, and they will despite the Octomom news stories, they will generally only transfer one to you, maybe two, if there are really compelling reasons. And so you usually have other embryos in the freezer. So if you then need to do a follow-up cycle, you wouldn't need to start from the beginning. You would then just go straight to a transfer because you would have an embryo available. So now that we got so many of the logistical and practical things out of the way, I'd love to focus the rest of the episode on the emotional parts and what it felt like, what was the experience like? I I think that would be very meaningful for our listeners. Definitely. There are so many aspects to this. And I do feel that having experienced both primary and secondary infertility, they were each really hard, but in really different ways. When it came to the primary infertility piece, there was a huge fear of what if I never have kids? And that sort of is it ever going to work out piece was really, really scary. There was a huge sense of alienation in the firm community. A lot of people, we love marriage and babies, and that's not a bad thing, but that's often what's happening around you. That's often the focus of conversation. And there can be this sort of sense of distance where everyone around you is in baby mode and you're not. And I remember going to a Shabbos meal towards the end of that process, which again, at the time, I didn't know I was towards the end. I knew I was just like really far in. And the entire Shabbos meal, everyone was talking about strollers. And now I have kids and I actually have a lot to say about strollers. But I remember at the time just feeling like I just had nothing to contribute. It wasn't that interesting to me because I didn't know about the whole like, you know, is it one fold? Is it modular? I wasn't in that world. And it just felt like everyone sort of on one side of this canyon and you're on the other side. And there's also this huge feeling of just kind of like waiting for your life to start a little bit. You're ready to be in this next stage, but you're not, and you don't have control over getting there. And it's kind of like, if you imagine like sitting on a 
bench at a bus stop and bus after bus is coming and everyone else is getting on and you're just sitting there and it's hours are passing, it's getting dark and every single bus that comes by, it's not the route that you need. And that's kind of what infertility feels like in a lot of ways. And you, you have to live essentially kind of on that bus stop, like in limbo for months or years or however long it takes. And there's this sense of just kind of waiting and not having control over getting to that next step. Did you have friends around you or anyone who was dealing with this at the same time as you were? The first time around, I didn't have so many people who were dealing with it at the time. I did have people who had dealt with it in the past, and that was really helpful. In in some cases, it wasn't so helpful. I think for some people, they were like, oh gosh, that was terrible, you know, and that that didn't do so much for me, even though, you know, it was really hard. But I did find that for some friends, they could kind of meet me where I was. They knew what it was like to be in that spot, but they also had the perspective of being a little bit out of it, that they could also encourage me that like, oh, the fact that like you had this response rate, like that's really good. And that, you know, it is moving in a good direction and that encouragement. And I think what's so hard, especially for friends and family is that our instinct, and this is my instinct too, is to just say like, don't worry, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. But the truth is, you don't know if it's going to work out or not. And you know that reality when you're in it. And that kind of sort of false encouragement that like, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I don't think that's helpful. But someone that can say, I was right there where you're at. And I'm actually in a different place. Like it did shift for me. That made a big difference to me. Do you find that there is a hierarchy in pain? And if there's that dynamic that goes on? There can definitely be a hierarchy in pain. And I also think that pain in general is very narrowing. And there's an element where when you are really struggling with something, at least for me, it's really hard to almost like look up and realize that other people are struggling too. And in some ways, it was almost jarring because you can get into this mindset of almost thinking that you know, once I have kids, I'm never going to have a bad day again, right? I'm never going to have any problems and everything's going to be smooth sailing. And I'm sure anyone who has kids is like, as they're listening. And of course you get to the other end and it's still life and there's still pain and there's still struggle and it doesn't magically solve all your problems, but there is sometimes this element when you're in it. And I definitely found in terms of primary versus secondary infertility, when I was going through primary infertility, Sounds terrible, but I had no patience for secondary infertility. I just felt like it was like, you know, some of us haven't had our first slice of pizza yet, you know, like just relax. Like that's really how I felt. And I was actually so surprised by how much I wanted to have a fourth baby and how upset I was at the thought that I might never be able to. And it really threw me off how how much that mattered to me. Cause I had three kids. That's not a tiny family. And when you have a history of infertility, that's really not a tiny family. And it felt greedy, like wanting more. It's like, you know, the pizza again. And, um, and it really surprised me how badly I wanted it. And I actually found it very validating. I had read one or two articles about people specifically trying to have a fourth baby and really wanting one and really struggling that they couldn't have one or that, you know, they weren't able to have one yet. And it was so validating to realize that it wasn't just me, that it was okay to want this. 
I think with secondary infertility, you can have a lot of guilt sometimes that you are, how come the kids I have aren't enough? You have guilt for taking away resources. I'm spending like this kid's college fund to try and have this other kid. That you're taking time and energy away from your kids. Being a working parent and doing IVF was a lot. And I definitely had less time and less patience while I was doing it. And I felt a lot of guilt over that. And yeah, it can be this kind of complicated experience and a big turning point for me with secondary infertility was that for a while, I, part of why I didn't want to shift to IVF earlier is that I had decided in my mind that it was crazy to do IVF, to have a fourth baby. And that, that made no sense. And so I couldn't do it. And so I kept pushing this protocol thinking like, okay, this has got to work. And finally it occurred to me where I was like, you know what, it's my life and my body and my money and my insurance coverage. And if it matters enough to me to do something as big as IVF in order to have this baby, that's okay. And I can just, I can do that. I don't have to feel like there's sort of a line in the sand that's arbitrary. And so that was a a big turning point for me to feel like I could just accept that I wanted this really badly and that I was willing to go through a lot of stress and difficulty in order to have it. And once I accepted that, I was able to do everything else more easily. But I do think that secondary infertility is really hard for other people to understand. It's like, you already have three. What's the problem? You already have two. You know, sure, another one would be nice, but why is it such a big deal? And I think the best explanation of it is just that it's that control piece in a way that it's such a personal decision when you're done having children, when you're not. And to have that decision made for you is really painful to not be able to make that decision yourself, that my family is complete to have sort of the world, your body kind of decide that on your behalf is very, very difficult to go through. That's so powerful what you're sharing right now, because even people who experience it might not be able to articulate what the dynamic here is. So it's the body turning on you and you losing control or the body losing its control. I'd like to ask you if you have seek therapy for this or any external support and has this impacted your marriage? How has this impacted your marriage? I have at times sought therapy for it. I have benefited greatly from support groups. So I'll do a shout out to Yesh Tikvad. They actually, and I'll, I'll mention this as well for women who might be listening that would benefit. They have groups for infertility. They actually also have a group for pregnancy after infertility, which I think is so brilliant because there is a tremendous amount of anxiety and guilt and stuff that um, comes when you're dealing with a very long fought for pregnancy that I think there, there can be so much shame in having any struggle around that. And so just to know that that resource is out there. What shame? I Guilt, I hear all the other things make sense. Where would the shame come from? So what can happen with pregnancy after infertility in general is for many of us, a huge amount of anxiety. And just to give you a sense, when I got the call that I was pregnant after IVF, my the nurse said, congratulations, you're pregnant. I'm going to schedule for you to come in on Monday and we'll make sure you're still pregnant. So it's immediately conditional. Rates of miscarriage are high. You know right away that you have this thing, but you might lose it at any time. 
And when you've been through infertility, even if it's a one year of infertility, that's usually 12 failures. That's time after time after time where it doesn't work out. So it's really hard to believe that it's going to work out. And you have this feeling of the other shoe is going to drop that I, for many of my pregnancies, every ultrasound, I was convinced that the baby was dead and they were going to tell me that, that I would have, you know, my heart would seize almost until like I could see the baby moving. And I think the shame is that you're pregnant after infertility. You should be so happy. This is what you worked for. And you are so happy, but it can also be very difficult. And I think on top of that, if you're experiencing, you know, pregnancy is not always like a walk in the park for nine months. And I think most pregnant women at least feel like they can like complain about their like kinkles or how sore they are. But we often feel a tremendous amount of guilt and shame if for one second we're not like loving that we're vomiting. So that also can play into it. If it's a hard pregnancy, you can feel a huge sense of like, what's wrong with me that I'm struggling with this pregnancy when I work so hard for it. And so it kind of all ties into each other, but it's very hard to flip a switch from it's not going to work out. It's not going to work out. It's not going to work out to like, oh, I'm going to bring a baby home from the hospital. And that shift can happen pretty late. I think I was maybe 20 plus weeks with this most recent pregnancy when I turned to my husband and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I think we're going to have a baby. And he's like, yeah, like, you know, smell the coffee. But I, I couldn't get my head around it for a while because I was so sure that I was about to get bad news. And back to the impacts on your marriage. Yeah. So infertility involves a lot of grief and it's kind of a weird grief because in some cases there are losses. It's almost like a grief of something that never was. And people grieve really differently. Some people want to talk about it all the time. Some people don't want to talk about it. Some people want to be really public and you know tell their family and friends. Other people find that very invasive. There's really sometimes I think a real mismatch. On a more serious level, there can also be a mismatch in what you want to do. How much money am I willing to pay? How much stress am I willing to go through in order to have a baby? And people can feel differently. I also find that sometimes the impact on women and men is different. It's really impactful for both. But as a woman, it's happening in your body and you're going to all the appointments. You're kind of riding the roller coaster. As a man, not to speak on behalf of men, but from what I've heard, you can feel like your only role is to support your spouse and there's not really room for your own grief or your own struggle. And so that mismatch or that sense of we're all trying to like play our parts well, but it's a lot and it's overwhelming can be really, really hard. I think that as with any crisis, any difficulty, a marriage that is on a crumbly foundation can really suffer very dramatically from something coming in. A marriage that's on a stronger foundation can kind of weather it a little more. But I think it's absolutely critical to have places to go to for support that are not only your spouse, whether it's a therapist support group, a family member, a friend. There's a lot of sort of message boards and like mentoring, like infertility buddies, um, people who have been through infertility. I think having that outside support is really important because if you're putting all of it on the marriage, that's a lot given that the other person is not just like a neutral bystander, they're struggling with it too. One thing I wanted to add, I heard someone who went through many rounds of IVF with failure 
she mentioned how every loss wasn't just an emotional and physical loss. It was a big financial loss. And people sometimes don't recognize that. Take any marriage and add financial stress into it. It can really create a lot of tension and destruction. So add this hormones and the physical, the emotional part of uh, having a failed cycle. Do you have anything to add to that? Yes. The financial piece can be very, very overwhelming. And even again... One way to think about it is that going through infertility treatments is like having a very serious medical condition for the time that you're in it. I was at the Walgreens drive-through so often that they didn't even like need my name. Like they saw the car, they got the medication. Like it was almost every day. And while in, even with insurance coverage, it's still thousands of dollars that you end up spending, or, you know, if insurance covers this medicine, then it's going to take two weeks and I need the medicine in three days. And I've already put up this other money. And so I'm just going to pay out of pocket $5,000 for that medicine. And so I can start it right now. There were a lot of considerations like that, that needed to be made. And, um, Again, I can't say enough about the value of having that insurance coverage. And I'm saying it because it really took activism for that to happen. And, that continued activism needs to happen so that everyone has access to it. But going through multiple rounds can be financially almost ruinous. It can really take out your savings. It can put you into enormous debt. People mortgage their houses for this. It is enormously stressful. And one thing I'll add, because this is a, a common infertility pet peeve, but people have this theory that part of that, you know, infertility is sort of caused by stress. And if you only relax, then you would get pregnant. And then they always have a story about their cousin, Tracy, who went to Hawaii on vacation and chilled out a little bit. And then boom, she got pregnant. And those stories are often frustrating, especially for those of us with medical conditions that are not just going away with a trip to Hawaii. But again, infertility is super stressful. There's no way to do this and not be stressed out because it's stressful. Like it just is going to the doctor every single day, including Sunday. I only got out of Saturdays because of Shabbos. My doctor said she would tell me if I really needed to be there on Shabbos. It's stressful and it's, you know, it's difficult taking medications that impact your mood and your hormonal level. I mean, you are literally shooting medications into your body right and left is stressful. Taking injections is stressful. The side effects are stressful. It's, it's enormously stressful. And I think just to know that, that it's when you're going through it, there's a lot of stress on a lot of different levels. Thank you for mentioning that. I think it's super important. I would love to hear some more pet peeves or things to say, things not to say, if you have some to add. But I do want to get to one more part of this episode, which I think is important to talk about because we do talk about taboo topics in Judaism for Orthodox yeah. Jews. Because that, at least for more ultra-Orthodox communities, the expectation the religious, the halachic expectation is to get married and have babies as soon as you can. Now, with modern Orthodox communities, people do not look at your belly the day after you get married, expecting there to be a baby in it. But in more ultra-Orthodox communities, that is the expectation. So you're either performing and being productive, literally, and having a baby, or you're being put on the nebuch. For me personally, I didn't like that you know, here are the two boxes you're going to fall into. Are we 
judging you for having too many babies, which I don't know if people are doing, or are we going to daven for you because you need the davening? Whereas more modern communities, people reserve the right to understand that people can make their own decisions and are probably making their own decisions. So what do you have to say to that? Do you think this needs to change? Especially knowing with how many quick divorces happen since you are in the divorce industry. Definitely. I think first of all, and this is something that I think all communities to some extent struggle with, but that our community does as well. Not every life follows sort of a perfect narrative and a perfect time frame, or what we think is a perfect time frame. It just doesn't happen. And that people struggle with all sorts of things. I think the speculation, I think it does happen sometimes in modern Orthodox community, like, oh, they've been married, you know, six years. I wonder if it's because she's in grad school. I wonder if like, you know, maybe something's going on. And the mothers for sure can be thinking what they're thinking because you can't help, but keep going. Absolutely. I, I think that there is that speculation and probably more of a sense of like, that's just not my business would be, would be valuable. And I think also that the more it's kind of stigmatized or you're, you become sort of in the Nebach category, the less people feel like they can share what they're experiencing without it always being this big deal to be able to say like, yeah, we're going through this thing. This is what we're doing. Again, no one wants to be treated like a Nebach case. And so I think just more sensitivity to the fact that life doesn't always go to plan, that sometimes we want to have kids and it doesn't happen right away. It actually, infertility impacts one out of eight couples. So a whole lot of people have this experience, at least to some level. So not seeing that as so aberrational that we know it could happen, but also that it happens that a lot of people go through this, that a lot of people go to get to the other end of it. And that there's a difference between providing support and treating someone as if something's wrong with them or they're, you know, an object of pity. And no one wants to be an object of pity, even if they're going through something that is genuinely hard. Do you think we need to change the expectation that we put on young couples that there's no choice because anyone going through the system believes that once they get married, they are obligated to produce children right away. I'll answer this with my uh, more divorce hat, but again, as with infertility, right? We were talking about how a marriage that's strong can withstand stress and turbulence better than a marriage that's kind of fractured. People sort of have this idea that, you know, if you're married and you have a baby, it'll, you know, tie you together and kind of solve any problems in the marriage. And uh, whenever I hear that, I'm like, have you met babies? Because they're super cute, but they add a tremendous amount of stress caring for young children is a a huge stressor on a relationship and a relationship that isn't viable to begin with, that isn't strong to begin with, is not going to be benefited by heaving that stress on it. So I think giving people the space to get to know each other, to get comfortable with each other. And if there are problems, the answer might not be divorce. It might be that we are really bad at communicating with each other and we need some serious work on communication. Why not do that before you have the stress of not only a baby, but also pregnancy and not feeling well and you know all the challenges that can come up with pregnancy and having kids. I think putting that on a marriage with the expectation that it's going to maybe fix something that 
is broken is is really misguided. And giving people the chance to settle in and make sure they're in a good place first, I think only benefits the marriage. Not even like, oh, we're preparing, we're going to decide if we're going to get divorced or not, but just let's get strong with each other because the second there's pregnancy and babies on the scene, it's going to test things. It always does. So the message here in case people are, you know, ooing and eyeing at how controversial I am and I am just throwing halacha down the toilet, which I am not. I'm saying it's so important for anyone who is doubting whether they married the right person or not. And if they're struggling and they're really understanding that having a baby is not going to solve the problems, I think we got I got what I wanted from asking this question. And I think that's an important question that anyone listening who is struggling or trying to understand having a baby will not make a bad marriage better support, professional support or intervention that can make a marriage better. Or sometimes, unfortunately, it has to be dissolved and adding a baby into it. I know some people reached out to me and said, you know, it's not fair after we had the single mother by choice episode. It's not fair to that child. You know, they're growing up in a single parent home. Well, what about all the kids who are growing up to parents who eventually get divorced or lose a parent? to death. Children never get to choose which families they're going to get into. Right. And I think at the risk of adding controversy, sometimes the shidduch system can give us this image or this impression that we're kind of like ordering something from a catalog, right? We did my, we did our research and we are getting X, Y, Z. I remember once reading a letter to the editor from a magazine where someone said, I'm so upset. I chose my son-in-law because he lived locally and now he wants to move. And again, you can't order people and relationships like, you know, from an LLB catalog. That's not how it works. So even with infertility, there can be a feeling sometimes of like, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Like, I thought we're going to get married and have kids. Like now there's a problem. And either spouse could feel like, well, what do you, you know, even if it's a, a problem again, that wasn't known beforehand, that what do you mean? I didn't sign up for this. And to know that when you marry each other, you sign up for life, which is going to include challenges. And this is a challenge that many couples experience in the process. It might be a short-term challenge. There are couples that spend a few very stressful months. There are couples that spend 10 very stressful years, but that marriage means signing up for the challenges that come and not having this expectation that we're going to give each other this like instant family just add water. And if someone can't fulfill that, this isn't what I ordered. This isn't what I expected. Yeah. I don't think there was anything controversial about it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so any pet beefs or do's or don'ts that you have? I would say a main do and don't is when you're in a group, you're at a Shabbos meal, you're at an event to just sort of scan the room and be aware. And this isn't just for infertility. I was at a meal once where everyone went around and shared the weirdest wedding present they had gotten. And it was really funny. And there were two single people at the meal. And so just thinking about if we're being inclusive with our language or with the stroller example, and there's nothing wrong with talking about strollers at a Shabbos meal when there's a bunch of people who have little babies and are interested in it, but to be mindful that, okay, maybe we'll spend 20 minutes on that and we'll move to something else that this is sort of the entire point of the conversation. And I'll actually credit, I think, uh, a Gila Block from Yish Tikva is the one who shared this sort of idea of kind of balancing with me that I, I wanted to share on, but that 
it's okay to talk about the things going on in our lives. We don't have to feel like these are, are topics we can't discuss, but to be mindful of who's included in a conversation. And if people aren't included to just, you know, 20 minutes in, half an hour in, shift to something else. And it can be done very naturally. And just to make sure that kind of the environments that we're creating are welcoming for all of the people that are present for whatever set of reasons. And thank you for not saying never talk about this or <laughs> never, because that goes into cancel culture. And that yeah. just, that creates more separation and not wanting to invite people who are not exactly like you to spend chagim with you or parties. Yes. And I very much felt when I was going through this, that it was my responsibility to also keep in mind that if I was hearing certain things that maybe, you know, oh, this wasn't as sensitive as it could have been that to also realize that I was in a very sensitive spot and that the person I was speaking to might not even know that I was going through this, wasn't trying to say anything sort of hurtful. So I think having that filtering on your end where your understanding of the fact that I'm so in this infertility space and this person is not, and again, not to feel like there's something we can't say, but that we're just mindful of who's here and is everyone getting something? Like when you serve a Shabbos meal, not everyone's going to like every single thing, but that there's enough available that like everyone's comfortable that everyone's part of it. Yeah. Taking responsibility. Love it. Thank you so much, Kesha. This was so valuable and beautiful. And I'm so happy you have your babies, all of them. (laughs) Thank you. Me too. And thank you so much for having me and for just opening up this really important conversation. Thanks for sticking around until the end, Fran Stans. As always, please do reach out to me with your comments and feedback. You can also participate in the discussion group on WhatsApp. There is a link in the show notes so you can join that WhatsApp group. Now, if you'd like to participate in the Pro and Cons Aliyah episode and share your experiences, I am still looking for someone who has made Aliyah and then reversed that decision and moved back or somewhere else after making Aliyah because it didn't work out or for whatever other reasons we'd like to hear from you as well as your successful Aliyah stories. I'd also love to hear cons and pros and do's and don'ts and all that stuff. Please keep your WhatsApp messages under a minute and you could send them to my personal WhatsApp number link in the show notes. A quick reminder, you can support the show by referring clients to my podcast launch business. I really appreciate the referral network that keeps growing. So thank you for that. I'd like to also recruit one more topic or a few guests for this topic. I'm collecting information for an exciting Mechotanim's Guide episode. So I'm still looking for someone who has married off daughters and has practical tips and tools and all the different expectations and things that they can share to people who are joining the Parsha and who would like that full guide. So I'm very excited about this very fun episode. We have collected so much valuable information and I cannot wait to share it with you. Have a great week and see you next time. 